of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki, and it is my pleasure to introduce you today to Jeannie Marie Patterson, Professor of Law, Co-Director of the Centre for AI and Digital Ethics at the University of Melbourne. Jeannie, welcome and thanks so much for making time available to speak with me. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Jeannie, you specialize in contract consumer protection and consumer credit law with an interest in the potential for new technologies to enhance consumer protection. Can you unpack this for us, please? Um, Well, it does seem a surprising combination in some ways, but it's not really. And the reason why it's not a surprising combination is that consumers are actually at the forefront of a lot of developments in new technologies. So one of the, you know, main deployments of a lot of uh, new digital technologies and even AI is in advertising to consumers. So um, my interest arose because what I saw happening in consumer markets, and I guess also the other main site of um, change and technological impact is in law firms um, in using digital technology to manage contracts, Mm. (laughs) contract preparation, and indeed contract performance. So again, my attention was drawn to those technologies because of the teaching that I do. So it's an ever um, evolving um, space for you, I would imagine. And just touching on advertising and and how we've been manipulated by AI and and, um, when you're pressing on, you know, if I, for instance, go to I'm searching for a new bed, um, suddenly I get all these ads that I'm just going, where on earth are they coming from? Yeah, it, it's um, a lot of that's to do with cookies and pixels, which are things that allow advertisers to track you across the internet. And interestingly, to track you um, whether or not you belo- you have a social media of presence on the internet or not. So that's kind of, it's annoying, but that's kind of at the um, less problematic end of the impact of technology online what we now know is that for example when we post information or if we post visual material on social media that that has and is being used to develop facial various kinds of facial recognition technologies Um, we know that there's an attempts to understand more about our emotions and what um our social media postings tell us about emotions for the purpose of, for a variety of purposes, selling us things or pricing insurance. And so, you know, the annoying ads that follow us are annoying, but that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of um, what people are trying to do with technology. And I should add um, here that a lot of the technology is just oversold. A lot of, there's a lot of assertions out there about what the technology can do. It can read our minds. It can know our emotions before we express them. Um, well, it can't read our minds and it doesn't know our emotions before we um, express them. What it's doing is making predictions on the basis of large amounts of data. In other words, it's using statistics or the kinds of things that actuaries used to do um, to to make guesses about how we might behave quite accurate ones but it's still statistics rather than mind reading i think a part of it is also that um, the sheer volume and the speed at which it can do it that that's of course confronting as well because you suddenly going well how do they know this but it is it's just all this information that's available Absolutely. And that's why we've seen, you're quite right, that's why we've seen this rise in AI and the use of um, digital technologies in business, because we've got tremendous computing power, we've got tremendous storage through cloud storage, which has enabled this very fast um, processing of very large amounts of data um, that allows these predictions, these um, correlations to be made. So, yeah, that's the change in the in the computational and storage power that allows such widespread use of the technology. So going back to like real basics, if you've got any advice to parents out there with kids on social media and digital footprints, what would your advice be to them? Well, my advice would be on the conservative side. So um, my observation is young people today are a little bit suspicious of digital technologies. Um, We often say, often hear that young people don't, 
don't value privacy um, are just addicted to online pre- to, to having an online presence. I think a lot of young people are very savvy about technology. I mean, most young people I know have a Facebook account that's for the purposes of their parents um, and has almost nothing on it and then are using different types of communication, often encrypted communication, to talk to each other. Yeah. But what I think is worrying, so I'm talking there about, you know, teenagers who have, who are old enough to have social media accounts and old enough to use various messaging apps. But what I do see is a lot of parents who are constantly posting their children on Facebook. Now, if you post your children's face on Facebook, they're not, they're not exercising choice about that. They've got no power to say yay or nay about that posting. Just be aware that you, the parent, are creating a digital footprint for your child and their face is indelibly placed on social media and it's it's there, it's not coming back. Um, and I think there's a big difference between doing that to someone and someone choosing to do it themselves. So, you know, just an air of caution, I think. That's an interesting point that you raise because I've got friends that have um, they've got photos of the whole journey of their kids from since birth to now six or seven years old. And I, I do often look at it and I wonder whether these kids at the age of 15 are going to look back and go, who actually gave you permission to do this? I know there's going to be a court case about this at some point. It's a, it's a really, really interesting question, and I'm glad you brought it up, because we often think about privacy. Privacy is a key value when we're talking about the impact of technology, because a lot of the things that new technologies have, have made possible are surveillance, um, you know, um, whether it's for policing purposes, or whether it's for advertising purposes, or whether it's for sort of other marketing type purposes, or whether it's in the classroom, or whether it's for health purposes. So what we're seeing is a lot of surveillance of people. Now, what you often hear um, raised in that context is this is an invasion of our privacy. And the sort of glib answer from a lot of people is, well, I don't care. I haven't done anything wrong. Privacy is not important to me. But when you look at children, what, what children are doing in growing up is learning about themselves. They're learning who they are, what they value, what sort of behaviours are acceptable, what sort of behaviours, um, you know, um, are integral to the character that they're developing. Now, if we are constantly watching and surveilling and, um, you know, marketing children, um, they lack the freedom to develop and to, to discover themselves, to think about their own characters, to think about their own values, because they're constantly being viewed by some authority figure. Now, I think that's really problematic. I think if we want children to be children, children to develop good character, then we need to give them a little bit of freedom and privacy to do that. And that means we need to be really careful about whether we post faces of our children all over Facebook, but also whether we allow schools to use digital technology to monitor them um, in, in various capacities. And whether indeed we condone the use of digital technologies to monitor them in the streets as well. Like the the questions are interrelated. We may think of um, AI as something that drives advertising, but behind that is this sort of insidious and growing amount of surveillance about how we live our lives. Yes, and and as you say, that you can actually start tracking and predicting what people are going to do based on the vast amounts of information available. I heard of, um, I had have heard of cases of people, um, you know, doing, putting in job application and the prospective employers checking out their Facebook pages and going based on that, they're making decisions whether or not you'll be a suitable candidate. What do you say about that? Well, I think that's quite right. I think employers now use um, LinkedIn and Facebook as a sort of way of checking the veracity of claims that people applying for jobs make and also indeed scrutinising their character. But the use of technology in this context goes further. So in jobs where there's a large number of applications, um, many sort of larger employers are using um, algorithms to sort the CVs. So the first sorting of the CV for jobs is often done by some computer program. Um, now, we may, we may not know that and we may not be happy about that um, because it's not transparent and it may mean that your CV is being ranked on factors that you're not aware of. Um, 
So, so it's not just surveillance of our social media footprint. Um, our very interactions are being mediated by computer programs at this point in time. Yeah, I think I read a post um, earlier this week on LinkedIn about a company that has got like phenomenal biases in, in exactly that in screening applications um, and actually um, classing women in like really derogatory. And the problem, of course, is that all these biases come from human beings that are that are programming it, that are writing the programs. Well, they are coming from the people who are writing the programs, but it's even more insidious than that because often people say, oh, well, we need to, you know, diversify who's who's the programmer and so on or who's creating the algorithms. That's definitely true. But a lot of the biases also come from historical patterns. One of the first things I said is that, you know, a lot of this technology is just driven by sophisticated mathematical statistical methods. So it's based on past data. So one of the problems with hiring algorithms is that if traditionally a workforce has been male or white or over 50 or under 50, um, algorithms that are trained to identify successful workers in that industry only have that historic data to work on. So they're going to prioritise not just men, but the characteristics that go with that cohort. Um, and one of the problems is you can take gender as a categorizing feature out. You can say, um, sort these CVs, decide who's likely to be most successful, but don't use gender as a criteria. But in any job application, there's a whole lot of proxies um, for gender. So there's things like what school you went to, what sports you played, um, yeah. the positions you, you've held, your volunteering, um, and even whether you've had time off for maternity leave. So all those proxies for gender can still result in um, an algorithm that re- replicates the previous workforce. And that's even aside from, you know, inherent biases in who's doing the programming or the selection. So it's a really, it's a really difficult problem. But we only start to resolve it by having greater transparency. And I'll put a plug in here for my colleagues, um, Leah Rupiner and Mark Chong, who at Melbourne University are doing a lot of work in this um, area of um, algorithmic bias in hiring. Um, and indeed, um, are supervising a PhD student who's working in that area. So it's an ever-evolving, um, clearly an ever-evolving um, scenario for us and, and many businesses. Talk to us about um, your masterclass, Demystifying AI Ethics, um, and it's a two-day course, and I believe it's it's going to be held in October. Yes. So um, what we've observed through talking to people about AI and AI ethics um, is that people know uh, firms are increasingly deploying AI. People who work in firms or in government or in business are increasingly being asked questions about the deployment of AI and the risks that carries, such as the ones we just talked about, the algorithmic bias one. And they know it's an issue, but they don't quite know where to start. So for a lot of us, when we hear AI, we think, what is that? Um, How do I respond to it? Um, How do I deal with bias? What are the other kinds of risks that the AI might carry? Um, I want to, I think most firms, businesses, governments who are deploying this technology probably do want to do the right thing and also realise there's a huge reputational risk if it goes wrong, but they don't know where to start. So the masterclass in um, demystifying AI ethics is really um, an introduction to what do we mean when we talk about AI? What do we mean when we talk about machine learning? Why are um, ethics important in this context? And what are the... um, governance and regulatory questions we might be asking so is this available to everyone um you don't need like a degree to do this you can just enroll no this is for anyone who's interested in these questions um and it's an unusual sort of course or or masterclass in the sense that it's taught by a computer scientist an ethicist um and a lawyer. That sounds a bit like a joke <laughs> in a way. And a computer scientist, an ethicist, and a lawyer walk into a pub. Well, in this yeah, I wanted to have in common. <laughs> in this sense, they're walking into a classroom. So um, no, it's it's precisely for people who don't have a background in these fields. Um, and you know, people will come with their own expertise and experience, and we'll be looking forward to, you know, hearing from them as well and what they've experienced in, in, in this place. 
So um, online, I'm assuming, because of our COVID situation, and, and what's the structure of it? Well, it is online, unfortunately. We had hoped to run it in person. Um, we're actually in a lovely building that's on the, um, which is called Melbourne Connect, which is on the site of the um, the um, Women's Maternity Hospital. It's quite a, um, a poignant site for many people. Many people in Melbourne were born on that site. It's a beautiful building. Um, and so we were hoping to run it there. We can't do that. We're running it online. Um, and the format is that there's some pre-recorded material because we know that people are coming in with different levels of expertise. And then the seminars um, with, with the expert staff who are teaching the subject where we can sort of talk through a number of these scenarios and issues. And, and really our aim is to um, make debates about artificial intelligence and the role it should play in society and business and government on a, on a very grounded level. Often um, it's discussed in quite abstract and sometimes hysterical terms. And we think that the best, um, the best way to deal with the challenges raised by new technology is actually to know enough about the technology to be able to unpack what the risks are and what the responses should be. When is the course going to be held, Jenny? It's it's in early October. So we're okay. running the first one. The, it's the inaugural one. That's in early October. But we'll be running it again um, in early next year as okay. well. In case um, this podcast isn't released before that. So um, if people are interested, would they be able to get the, the link to it even after the course has been held and yes, pay yes. some sort of fee for it? Well, they can come and do it again um, okay. because we will run it again. So even if so, if they miss the first one, there'll be another one coming up early in 2022. Um, and so they just need to visit the website of, of CADE, C-A-I-D-E, and they'll be able to find that class. Um, so it's part of our ongoing commitment really to engage with the wider community um, to allow them to sort of come together and understand more about how this technology works and what the impacts are and why we keep talking about AI ethics. Yeah, I should important. add, yeah, I should add, we teach a subject on this to first year students as well at the university. So we have um, a class of first years um, from all different disciplines who are also studying the subject and I think really enjoying it. Great. Um, well, I'll put the, um, if you can send me a link for it, I'll put it in show notes anyway. So if anyone misses this one, it is available next year. So with COVID changing our lives drastically, and this, of course, flows through to um, writing exams, you co-authored a paper with Simon Colin and Tim Miller titled Good Proctor or Big Brother, Ethics of Online Exam Supervision Technologies. Tell us about this. Did I pronounce Simon's surname correctly? Coughlin. Coughlin. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Simon Coughlin um, is an ethicist um, and or philosopher, I guess, um, moral philosopher, and Tim Miller is a computer scientist, and there's me, a lawyer. So um, <laughs> there we are, writing <laughs> the three of you <laughs> to, together, um, which is you know part of our commitment to bring these different perspectives to the issues. Um, and what we realised during lockdown is that there's been an increase in firms. Um, who are providing services to university, which is called, which are called proctoring services, and this is because students can't haven't been able to come together to sit their exams. They've had to sit their exams at home, um, and there's an issue there. Universities are concerned um, about students that students might cheat, and um, that would have an impact on you know the integrity of the degree and the reputation of the university. So the universities have to decide what they're. Going to to do about that risk um, it might be a very small risk but they um, are still concerned now one solution is that you have a online supervisor so students all come into a zoom room and a person watches them sit the exam to make sure it is them um, and that they are writing the exam themselves but these firms offer what they call online proctoring which is where they say they're providing an AI that watches for signs suspicious signs that students might be cheating um, and so the idea is that that's uh, both more effective in picking up um, cheating and also saves staff from sitting and watching students, at least that's the claim. And what we really did in that paper is just sort of walk through some of the concerns of ethics and governance that um, institutions might want to think about before they deploy these technologies. Um, we, we think it's very important that any university that deploys 
these technologies and AI to scrutinise students um, needs to be very clear about how that technology actually works so that they can understand how efficient or effective it actually is. And also so that they can build in mechanisms for students that may feel they've been unfairly treated to contest the outcome. And also that they are respectful of students who might find that the idea of an AI um, scrutinising them in taking their exams, or in some cases, it's actually a recordings made, which can later be scrutinised, that some students might find that quite invasive um, and privacy reducing and indeed create a larger degree of stress in the students. So really, we were saying that, you know, if you want to use, if you want to consider using these technologies, universities have some quite considerable responsibilities to think through how and why and where they're using the technology and and what processes of governance they'll put in place to keep students' interests safe. Clearly, we're in unprecedented times here, Jeannie, with with the COVID pandemic and uh, like uncharted waters. Ideally for universities, it would be to have their students back in halls doing their exams. But um, do do you think this is going to become more prevalent that online is the way we're going to go? In teaching or examining, do you, or both? A combination. Well, it's such an interest. It's been such an interesting time for me as an academic. Um, I think that sometimes we're told that students want university to be very flexible, and that means that students value flexibility over in-person teaching. Um, and there's often been a suggestion that we should be putting more and more our material online as pre-recorded lectures or MOOCs or something like that. And and what I've realised, and I think a lot of my colleagues have realised over the pandemic, is that students learn best by talking to each other and to mm-hmm. us. Um, and that's why students come, one of the reasons students come to university, I mean, they come to university for a variety of reasons. Um, and students really, really miss that interaction. So we've... Um, we found that students do want face, they want, they don't want, pre, just want pre-recorded material. Students like the live interaction. Yeah. So the good thing that's come out of, I think, um, COVID, if there's a good thing in terms of university teaching, is I think all of us understand a lot more about how to provide, about that balance between flexibility mm-hmm. and interactions. So it is quite useful for students to have their lectures, some material pre-recorded that they can listen to at their own leisure. Um, and students generally, I find, come to tutorials or seminars well-prepared because they've had an opportunity to not to, to listen to a lecture and then come along prepared to discuss it. But it's that point of discussion and debating and conversation that is critical and that hasn't gone away. Yeah. And I guess the other thing, yeah, it's really interesting how engaged the students are. Um, and I think the other thing I've noticed is that, you know, I, I teach with quite a big suite of, of, of junior academics, so people who are doing PhDs or just done PhDs, and those academics are so dedicated to their teaching. They really are dedicated to their teaching you know sometimes universities it said oh you know academics aren't interested in their students they're not interested in teaching that's not true my observation is those junior scholars are really interested in their students and have gone above and beyond just to keep that you know connection with their with these young these young minds really yeah I agree with you my my son happened to have done his uh, master's degrees at Melbourne Uni as well in organic chemistry and he's lost one of his last subjects he had to do online and it was the worst one for him he absolutely hated it he said you know he was worried he wasn't gonna he's like super smart he was worried he was gonna pass it and I think again this interaction for him um I I second what you say like it's very important for him to be in the class he actually loves the interaction with the professors and the other students there so I think um yeah there is a little bit for online if you have to catch up for something but ideally face to face yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, and, you know, I guess the other thing is that um, for many people who go to university, that's where you meet the people who will be important in your life moving yeah. forward. Um, and it's really hard to meet people if you don't get to go to university. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree so, with you. Yeah, and look, it's also a testament to the fabulous lecturers that you have at Melbourne Uni. And I, I speak now because my son's there, but I, for all universities, I think, you know, it's very important because you're shaping, you're literally shaping minds. 
Yeah, it's a really formative time for students when they're at university. They're discovering, you know, who they are and what they believe and learning how to be effective learners and communicators. So it's really important that we understand though that that it's a whole bundle of interactions and not just the transfer of knowledge. I think universities know that, but I think we need to be good at communicating that to to the wider public and to the government, Um, you know, and we can use technology to help us teach better. But at the end of the day, it's that interpersonal interaction between students themselves and students and lecturers that's, that's so important. I think so, because I, I think it's actually crucial for universities today to really make a case for why they are still so relevant. Because if you look at education online, that basically if there's anything you want to know, you can Google it and you can find it somewhere. And in most cases, you could even have a free course. Like I'm not talking about a four-year intense degree, perhaps, but you can find the information that you need. So um, staying relevant in these ever changing times of how education and knowledge is transferred would be paramount yeah no I think that's absolutely right if 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 universities are just about transfer of knowledge then we you know it's hard for them to justify their case because now there's online little bits of online information all over the place but even before that I mean people could go and read a book or listen to a podcast if all they wanted was the information but there's something else that comes from a classroom and we can we can be cynical about it but I truly believe that that there's something special that happens there so Yeah. yeah So a couple of weeks, an Australian court uh, gave the inventor status to a piece of artificial intelligence called Dalvis. It's been big news in the tech sector. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, it's it's an exciting decision, that one. Um, Though not unrelated to the conversation we've just been having about what is it about human interactions that are different from human machine interactions Um, and I think that's a theme of the work that I like to do is just to push why what the nature of those interactions are and you know why humans and machines might work differently than humans to humans anyway (laughs) Baylor and the Commissioner of Patents held that an AI system can be recognized under the Australian Patent Act as an inventor so an AI can be an inventor, but it can't be the holder of a patent. The patent has to be um, transferred or assigned to the human who owns the AI. Now, that's a world first. Australia is the only country where an AI has been recognised as an inventor. And there has been litigation and court actions all over the place um, you know, um, America, the UK, South Africa, to try by a group of um, patent attorneys who are pushing for this recognition. So Australia is the only country where an AI has been recognised as an inventor, despite this push across the globe. Um, Now, it's said that'll be significant for this pharmaceutical industry that uses um, AI or machine learning increasingly for drug discovery. Um, but the decision is very controversial. Um, it, it concerned a particular AI called Davis, um, which is a device for autonomous bootstrapping of unified sentience. So you can see from the name that there's an element of showmanship in this action. Um, yeah, so Dr. Thaler built Davis to, in his words, generate new ideas and determine which of those ideas was novel or valuable and then could be the basis for a patent application um, and Professor Ryan Abbott who's um, an, a, a well-known author and academic um, who writes about robots and AI he wrote a book called The Reasonable Robot has been involved in this action he believes that there should be um, legal neutrality if you like between AI and people so if an AI is doing a job that a person would otherwise do then they should um, then they should um be treated as <laughs> they should be treated in the same way um and so that's the argument but it's been controversial because a lot of people who are computer scientists a lot of people who are lawyers don't think that an AI um is sufficiently autonomous and creative to be treated as an inventor and moreover that the act in, the legislation the patent act itself really doesn't allow for a non-human to be an inventor so what was the judge's reasoning for giving his verdict? And apologies for my dog barking in the background there. Um, sorry. 
<laughs> well, makes it makes it lively. Um, so uh, my dog is not waking up, so that's I'm good. Your um, dog was asleep. <laughs> um, indeed. So uh, it was Justice Beach, um, who himself is um, a very fine uh, a legal thinker, um, but also with a science background. So Justice Beach um, thought that the AI Davis should, or Davis should be treated as an inventor because he said it operated autonomously or semi-autonomously. And the processes that it went through um, took it beyond merely um, merely um, recognising patterns to generating patterns. So he had, there was this idea that it was more than just a computational tool. It was in some way creating, exercising choice, acting autonomously, determining its own, own goals and path, pathways. So just a speech thought that the AI had the potential to go beyond simply um, acting as a sort of big calculator, if you like, or a big computational device to something that was actually generating new information, creating, choosing. And for him, that made it an inventor. Um, Now, the debate debate lies in this. Um, Humans... Humans program the algorithm. Um, humans give the algorithm, or they write the algorithm, they give it the data, they give it instructions about what it should do. Um, for just a speech, that wasn't enough to mean that the human was the inventor. Um, for him, the mystery of the processes took the AI beyond what the human could do. But there's many people who say that's just not right, that, in fact, the human is in control the whole time. The human is determining the processes. It may not be determining the pathways that are followed to reach an outcome, but it's setting the process in train and um, effectively determining what comes out. Um, And so, you know, you should see the AI as a tool, not an inventor. But that's the debate. And different views have been expressed on that. Yeah, my first comment about this is um, when these court, these cases come to be heard, how do they choose the judges? Because you need quite a level of sophistication and background. As you said, he's got a science background. But what would happen if you have a judge that doesn't have a science background? Like, how do they, you know, like, how do they make these decisions? Well, it's it's a really interesting question, and it's really the central question to how does war respond to technology, because it's a bundle of skills that, of course, um, any lawyer would not have, particularly in an area which is fast moving. Um, and in Australia, we generally rely on an adversarial system, which is that the two opposing sides in this case, the legal team representing Dr. Thaler and the legal team representing the Commissioner of Patents, bring the evidence and present it to the judge in an adversarial context. And then the judge makes a decision about who has proved their case the best. Now, one of the things we might say about the judgment um, in on first instance, is that there seemed to be very little evidence presented by the Commissioner of Patents about the characterisation of the AI, the characterisation of what the AI could do, that it was more than brute computational force, that it was autonomous or semi-autonomous, um, that it was exercising choice, that it was in some way creating. All of those arguments seemed to come from Dr Thaler where they didn't seem to be much rebuttal by the Commission of Patents. The Commission of Patents had focused perhaps legitimately on the words of the legislation. So there was kind of a mismatch, I think, between the way the two cases were run. The case is going on appeal, and one would expect that at least in the appeal there'll be more discussion about what the AI itself could do, as well as importantly, and I can't stress this enough, the language of the legislation. Now, I'm not a patent attorney and I'm not a patent lawyer, so um, I would not delve into the the intricacies of that area of law. And, you know, my good colleague, Kim Weatherall, who's um, at Sydney University, is well across this. Um, But from somebody who's interested in AI, it raises precisely the question you've said about 
well, how do we think about AI? How do we think of its relationship with people? What does it mean to be autonomous? And how do judges just make those decisions? And I think that's going to be an area of ongoing debate. And in fact, we at Melbourne Uni um, have a program called, which is the Nini and Stevens Law Program, which is actually, its title is um, New Legal Thinking for Emerging Technologies, question mark. And the very um, purpose of that program is to think about how lawyers and courts and judges and policymakers actually um, develop a, a system or a way of responding to technologies because technologies are moving so fast. There's no point going out and giving judges a course in coding or a course in machine learning because by the time they do that, the technology would have moved, you know. Um, so how is it that judges and lawyers and so on keep up to date in the impacts of these technologies? Now, courts have had to do this before. So, for example, the example that's usually used, um, uh, and I've heard it used by Dr. Alan Finkel, who was the previous chief scientist, is when we had in vitro fertilisation, that was astounding. That was an astounding example of technology because all of a sudden we were creating humans in a different way and the lawyers and the ethicists and the policymakers actually had to get together. And there was a big inquiry led by Professor Louis Waller, who was at that time at Monash University, a lawyer. Um, there was a big, there had to be a conversation between all of those different expert groups about how we respond to this absolutely ground shifting new technology, how we deal with the moral arguments that surround the use of this technology and what legal protection should be put in place. And that that worked because the parties were able to um, have a three-way conversation between those different expertises. And I think that's what we're going to have to see in this area as well, much more of an ongoing conversation between, it seems like it's a constant theme between lawyers, ethicists and computer scientists. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, if, if I'm assuming some patents actually get challenged in court, if AI is given the, um, the, the the right that they've now created, the AI has created this this page, who do you sue? Oh, so the interesting thing about the judgment is so though the AI could be named as the inventor, the actual holder of the patent had to be a human. Okay. So, um, so you're quite right. There's a whole lot of debate that happens after that point about whether the invention is novel and um, whether the invention, the, the claimed inventor actually is the inventor and so on. Um, but that all takes place through the holder of the patent, which has to be a person. So the decision is not saying that an AI has legal personality in the sense okay. that they can go to court and hold a patent. The decision is simply saying that that, that, that creative decision can be sit within an AI rather than has to sit within a person. And the reason they want to know that in that case is because machine learning is used a lot in the pharmaceutical industry to develop new drugs and compounds. And so there's this sort of debate about, well, do you attribute that invention to the person or persons that um, initiated the process or do you attribute that process to the AI that was used? That's that's the debate. Um, mm. I can see murky ground there because if someone's making claim that the AI has invented something where a human hand may very well have been quite heavy in it and uh, someone else is doing the same work and then and they're also going, well, the AI did it, um, it's going to make for very interesting court cases. Absolutely. And look, I think that is one of the concerns, that's one of the arguments that's raised, that if you, if, if the, if the, if the, product or the output of the invention is primarily developed through machine learning or an AI and you name a human and get it wrong does that mean your patient is invalid and that's that's where that's what um, the people who brought the case are concerned about the fact that they may they may get it wrong but I guess on the other side people are saying it's still it's still not the right decision and moreover that kind the argument that an AI can be an inventor kind of prioritises large pharmaceutical companies that are using a lot of machine learning to develop compounds. And are we just going to have a rush of AI-developed um, inventions that kind of clog up the system and lay claim over a whole load of, you know, possible inventions, you know, rule, 
cutting out the possibility of human inventors. And I think all of those policy decisions still need to be unpacked, um, to be honest. But I think I think they can only start by us having a better understanding of what actually the, the input of the AI is. Because I think we're kind of arguing about... Um, think there's a danger we're arguing about some romanticized or exaggerated vision of what AI is Mm -hmm. um, rather than sitting down and sort of unpacking the reality of the process. I think you've made a valid observation that the three parties actually need to get together the sooner the better and actually sit down and start nutting this out because it's it's not going away. Um, it's becoming more prevalent in our everyday life. And um, interestingly enough, uh, there was a verdict given in a court in the US just shortly, I think the 3rd of September, that had the opposing verdict. Yeah, so no, as I said, no other country has accepted this. Now, partly that's because the wording of the legislation between the different countries differs, Um, but partly it's because Australian courts have gone out on a bit of a line here. And, I mean, one concern is that this decision or this line of thinking takes Australia out of the sort of consensus of the rest of the world and that that's problematic too. But, yeah, it's not going away. But it's going to come up again and again and again because, for example, you know, if an AI is assessing... Um, job applications, if an AI assessing loan applications, if an AI assessing um, people's rights to get Centrelink payments, if an AI is um, uh, determining whether students have cheated in exams, you've got lots and lots of applications of AI. When that process goes wrong, which it undoubtedly will, Mm -hmm. there's going to have to be a decision about who's responsible and by what standard they're judged. So these questions about how do we conceptualise AI for the purpose of legal liability is one that's going to come up again and again and again. And I, I know I keep saying this, but we can't answer that question without knowing more about how AI works yeah. and also knowing more about the philosophical and ethical consequences of particular decisions we're still in a position now where we can make these choices we're not in we're not living in um you know the minority report yeah um or blade runner yeah. yet where you know the decision about technology is long gone it's already been taken and people are and individual humans are relatively powerless in the face of decisions taken about the role of technology that's why those movies are so dystopian because Mm -hmm. humans have ceased to be able to exercise choices about the way they'll interact with technology some of us have no choice now but we still are in a position to make laws to call to sort of claw back the decision making power i think Definitely. Um, and as you mentioned, like there are a lot of experts in, in Australia working on that. And for those who aren't uh, following Jeannie on a LinkedIn page, do that because she puts out a lot of um, uh, courses and discussion points that uh, are held at the University of Melbourne. And they're very, very interesting. And they all generally for free to join in. And I joined in one um not so long ago and you have international guests as well which is which is absolutely awesome because you can see what's happening in the rest of the world yeah no we one of our missions at um the center for ai and digital ethics is just to bring the conversations about ai in all its manifestations and in some good good manifestations to share the good stories but also you know just just being bring people who are interested into the debates about how the technology works, what the what the philosophical or moral concerns might be about it, um, how we might share the benefits of that technology and make it available to everybody rather than just some people, and also what the legal framework for that technology should be. We want to bring conversations about that um, those questions to the broader community, and we want to hear from people in the community that have expertise and knowledge and ideas about those those issues. I think we live in a time that we're all impacted by it. We don't have to be experts, but it's certainly good to know um, the use of technology, how you use your phone, where you enable or disable cookies, where you leave your digital footprint. These are things that, um, and I think from parents need to educate their kids as well now, how they're using it. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, people don't need to be afraid about it, but they need to engage with it. I mean, often we sort of think about the future. We think about, oh, the robots are coming and may take our jobs. Well, I don't think it's the robots who are coming. It's the AI that's coming and it may not have a body, but it's still, you know, going to impact on our lives. So it's going to make a difference. So speaking of... um parents and, and everyone keeping up to that how are universities doing that and how are you adapting your courses in in delivering it and how does this all work well it's pretty hard for universities not to be keeping up with this technology because it's impacting on almost every area so I think you find that um all universities and particularly, I mean, I, I know most about my own university, Melbourne University, but universities are increasingly offering um, domain-specific courses. So, um, for example, law and technology, um, sociology and technology, computer science and in artificial intelligence, they're all offering sort of domain or, or discipline-specific courses, but at least at the university I'm at, we're also offering cross-disciplinary courses. So we are bringing different faculties together to teach students about this material. And that is probably one of the most exciting things that all of the boundaries are now breaking down between, you know, traditional university disciplines. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the biggest impacts of AI is in medicine, in fact, in in diagnostic and treatment tools. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden we have really interesting conversations between, you know, doctors um, and population health scientists and computer scientists about the best ways to deploy this technology and what their role is and how we check their accuracy and and the like so different types of conversations are happening across the university um, and students you know are, are, start, are very interested and keen to participate in those conversations and students of course today probably well they're the generation that has grown up with the technology because mm-hmm. a first-year student now is probably 17 or 18. So they've lived in a world where they've always known the internet. Um, they're always exposed to the technology. Um, it's surrounded them. So they're very interested in to engage in discussions about that technology. I mean, students, we ran a session recently on deep fakes um, and, you know, freedom of expression. Um, one of my colleagues um, Dr. Michael Wilden is very interested in this and um, students were, were really engaged in that discussion because they understand the way in which um, technology that's used in movies is now also used to um, spread misinformation and sway people's opinions. Um, so deep fakes and fake news are really, really big issues for everybody and one that students are passionately engaged with. Well, it, it can um, influence the outcome of who is the president of the country, as we've seen. So, like, do not underestimate it. And the Twitter accounts, I think um, I think I read there were 12 Twitter accounts that were responsible for most of the, of the disinformation in Trump's uh, election period. And that's all it is, just 12 bots sending yep. out continual misinformation. Yep, that's right. So, um, you know... The, it's there's really inform, interesting information uh, or studies going on now on how information spreads. So here's the point. Um, we may have Twitter bots that are sort of feeding information to populations who might be interested or influenced by that information, but we can also use technology to watch how that information flows and to indeed um, think about interventions that may prevent, present different viewpoints or indeed if you're looking at, you know, um, spreading extremist views or radical views, perhaps intervening a bit earlier to try and um, stop that process. So not, not, not censor information, but, fo- but follow the flows of disinformation to understand how um, different kinds of information might be shared um, or presented, I think. So yeah. it's, it's a really interesting, interesting time. Well, I was, uh, um, at the time of speaking, we've just had the Melbourne um, protest this just week and gone by, and I noticed the, the police have been monitoring social media accounts. So, you know, like I'd imagine p- people such as the police force and people following criminals, like this, they're beginning to get real experts in depth in their, in their departments in terms of um, tracking people and seeing what they're doing. 
right, but it's also really important, I think, in that point, this to have this kind of debate because we we want police to track criminals, we want to catch terrorists, but we want to not give away civil liberties as a way of doing that. And ideally, we develop ways of intervening earlier that are less um, that are more effective um, and involve less suppression of you know people's rights of communication and freedom of you know um freedom to express views but not be sucked in by extremist um harmful or or dangerous views i mean we i don't think we want to hand too much power to the state to track comes back to that point about surveillance we don't want the police to track every movement we don't want the state to track every movement um so we need to understand more about how people become radicalised, inflamed, the reason why people move to extremist views, the reason why people believe wrong information. Yeah. If we can know more about that, then perhaps we can intervene in a way that's um, more compatible with sort of democratic values, I think. Yeah, um, yeah so it's, they're, they're important discussions. Now, I have another meeting, so I'm okay. To... Okay, we um, we actually had another one, but we're gonna. Jeannie has to go. Just any you closing. Ask, oh, I'm happy for you to ask that other question if just, you like, but I just wrap it up. Yeah. Um. And sorry, I was like. No, that's fine. AI. What's the biggest difference that it's made in the legal field? You think? Well, we're not going to have robot judges. <laughs> I'm not, delighted. We, we do not have the sophistication to do that. Yeah. In the legal field, it's made dealing with paper easier. So a lot of the applications in the legal field are about sorting documents. So humans don't need to sort through thousands and thousands of documents to find a particular clause or term of a contract. But the biggest impact, I think, for lawyers is that their clients are using technology. So increasingly, lawyers have to engage with clients who want to use new technologies and want to know what the issues are. So lawyers' jobs have changed because a lot of the the management of cases and files and contracts has become um, digitised and also automated. But in terms of the advice lawyers are giving increasingly, they themselves are having to advise on on the impact of technology because it's affecting their clients. So forcing them to get up to date and up to speed. Jeannie, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Any closing thoughts you'd like to leave the audience? And um, is it okay if I leave your email address in the show notes? No, that would be wonderful. And we could have talked forever. It's been I such know. an interesting <laughs> conversation, hasn't it? Yeah. It has. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And to our audience, um, please feel free to contact Jeannie. Um, I'll put her email address. And I look forward to you joining me next week for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.